All right. We are going to get started in here. If you are here for apologetics, question and answers, as we get kicked off, um, if you want to start thinking of some particular questions, or even if you have some written down, go ahead and get those out. Uh, I'd love it to be a little bit more organic and free-flowing. If you're here, you might be asking the question, <clears throat> what business does Christianity have with talking about issues of intellectualism? What business does Christianity have talking about evidence and science and verification and biology and cosmology and and biomolecularism, like what, what, what business does Christianity have talking about this? And there's two things I want to start by, by noting. First and foremost is that the, a Christian worldview is the foundation for all of modern science. All of modern science actually borrows a Judeo-Christian worldview, which says that the gods are not Thor and Zeus and haphazardly making things, and the, the mountains are not made from Tiamat's breasts, and we are not all people who are just made as slaves, and the gods whimsically create uh, volcanoes and oceans whenever they feel like it. The Judeo-Christian mindset came in, and we read scripture that says God sustains all things. He is a God of order, not of chaos. He is, uh, he, he is the God that, that has ordained all of things. Like the reason the reason we can do science is because we understand there's constants in our world, from Planck's constants to Avogadro's number to pi to all these. The reason we can do math and science is we have to use Christianity to do so. The most brilliant minds in all of science, historically speaking, have actually cited their worship of God and their love for God as the reason for their science. In Principia Mathematica, the author dictates that the reason that he dives into the sciences is so that man would know how to glorify God deeper. These texts that are formulaic to the, to the very basic understanding of everything we know about science and math, they cited the reason they do their science is based on a Judeo-Christian mindset, and it's for the glory of God. So it is only a, a very recent invention that science is in some capability at odds with God. It's completely untrue. In, in fact, you have to borrow from Christian. You have to borrow from God in order to do science. Because the reason that we can expect that the, all those constants and, and considerations are going to be the same tomorrow as they were yesterday, we have no proof for that. We have no scientific evidence for that. We assume it. We assume that something's going to sustain it without any proof that it's going to be that case. So, secondly, the Bible tells us to worship the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The book of 1 Peter says that it is the Christian's responsibility to have an answer for the hard questions for why there is hope within you, okay? When I was growing up in church, bless his heart, my youth pastor, I would come to church, and I'm built a little bit more left brain, a little bit more cerebral like a lot of you, right? Uh, when you tell me to, I, I'm, I'm a skeptic of everything, right? When someone comes up, and they're like, yesterday God spoke to me. I'm like, what do you mean by that? Where? When? How? Was it an audible voice? Did you feel it in your heart? How do you know it wasn't indigestion? What if it was just bad pizza? Paul in the, Old, in the New Testament thought he heard God talking and it led to his death. What do you mean you heard God talk? Right? That's, how, that's how I do my life. Right? Now I'm a pastor, so I don't say that to someone because that's going to hurt their feelings. But internally, those, every time someone says it, that's what goes on in my head. Maybe you're built like me. Right? God did these miracles. That's why you can trust him. What do you think? How do we know he did the miracles? How do we know that what he said is true? How do we know we're holding the same Bible that was back then? What if the translations over the years have all been changed? What if we don't have anything near it? What if it was a hoax? What if this was just used in order to reform society in the way that the Judeo-Christian mindset wanted to be? How do we know? How do we know? How do we know? This is the way my brain works with everything. So, my youth pastor, I would say, um, if God is good, why is there evil? 
Is there evidence for God creating the universe? What do we do with archaeology? What do we do with all these facets of science? And my youth pastor was just ill-equipped. So he would be like, Chris, why don't we just play dodgeball and chubby bunny and we forget about this whole big question thing, right? It's upsetting because a lot of us have real questions. The Bible doesn't shy away from those real questions. Even though some of us who are ill-equipped do, the Bible doesn't. So I was going to present to my dad the reason I didn't believe in God anymore, and my dad introduced me to Christian thinkers for the first time in my life. R.C. Sproul, Aquinas, uh, William Lane Craig, D.A. Carson, Norman Geisler. Most of these people, you've never even heard their names because for whatever reason, we don't really jump into classical Christian thought and the brilliant minds of apologetics as Christians. I was told one time, the reason God doesn't put evidence in the world is because he wants you to have faith. 100% false. Paul in the New Testament says, Romans chapter 1, Paul dictates this. God, if you ask God to make himself clear, he would say, I already have. Abundantly clear. And so the questions that we're asking do have answers. They're worth asking, and God's not afraid of our doubts. I want to start by, by saying that. So we're going to jump into a little bit of Q&A. If you have a question, you can just raise your hand, and then we'll kind of have a little bit more of an organic back and forth. Yes? Okay, two things. He, uh, can everyone hear him? He said, based on the fossil record, we can see strata of time and epochs of time, right? Every time we watch Jurassic Park, 66 million, 65 million years ago, the dinosaurs all died out. So how do we rectify that? With If you do the study of, of the Bible, it looks like everything was created <coughs> seven to 15,000 years ago. There's not enough time for all that to happen. That's your question? Yeah? Yeah, Sumeria, Mesopotamia, the Fertile Crescent, Tigris, Euphrates. Okay, yes, good question. Um, so at its core, we, we have to understand, let me ask you a question. Where, uh, where and when were the first five books of the Bible given to the Israelites? Anyone know? I, I, what? Everyone's like, oh, everyone becomes a mouse all of a sudden. What? Do you know? You can guess. You can be wrong. You like Mount Sinai. Who likes Mount Sinai over here? Okay. We're out in the wilderness. We're out. What had just happened when, uh, when they were out in the wilderness? What were, where were they previously? The Israelites. Egypt, right? Y'all seen Prince of Egypt? Look through heaven's eyes. Okay, anyway. So for decades and decades, the Israelites, God's people, had been nothing but slaves. And they lived in Egypt, which what was the, what, what, was, what did worship look like in Egypt? What, what form of uh, religion did they practice in Egypt? Polytheism, okay? Poly, many, theism, gods. Many gods, right? So they, they worship the sun god Ra and the god of frogs, Hepsit, and the god of the Nile, and they had all these different gods they worshiped. So when God wants to free his people, he comes into Egypt and he says, I am going to demonstrate that there is, as the Shema says, there is only one God. Hear, O Israel, listen up. The Lord our God is one. There's not 15 of us. There's not 37 of us. There's not an oligarchy. There's not pantheism. It's not polytheism. There is one God. 
How does he do that? He demonstrates his power over their gods by taking whatever they're supposed to be best at and shoving it in their face. This is what Yahweh does. He's pretty cool, right? So they worship the sun god Ra. God sends 10 plagues. One of the plagues is that, what does God do? Darkness, right? Well, your God's raw, Yahweh says, and he turns the lights out for a whole, and it's people like, why is it so dark all the time? Because Yahweh is the king of light, okay? Then Hepzibah, they worship him. He's the God of frogs, and so what does God do? I'm going to send a whole plague of frogs on the people, and then you've got the God of the Nile, and God says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to turn the Nile from being uh, a a place of, uh, a source of food to blood, so God's demonstrating I have power over all the other gods. Each of the ten plagues, including the last plague, which is they worshipped a God of life and fertility, and God says, I'm the God of that too. I give life, I take it away. I am the God of all of it. So when he gives the Pentateuch, when he gives the first five books, when he gives the Torah to Moses on Mount Sinai, it is, a, it, it is used for what purpose? We have to ask this question. When God gave them the first five books, was it a science textbook for them? No. Were they asking the questions about cosmology at the beginning of the universe? No. Were they asking about the age of the earth? No. God gave it to them to answer the question of what does it mean to live under Yahweh and not under the polytheistic gods? That's how we see it, which is why when we read the creation story, it's poetic, it used Baroque language, it's flowery, and it demonstrates God's providence over all things. So when we ask the Bible to tell us exactly how it happened, it's not going to do so because that would be anachronistic, right? An anachronism is the Bible would be answering questions that no one at the time was asking, right? Like if you read the book of Exodus and it says you all should really cut back on your screen time, we would think, the heck is screen time, right? How did they know what screen time was? That would be an anachronism. It's something later on that's been inserted into the text. So to answer your question, first of all, to understand why isn't it clear in Scripture what happened? Because this was not the concern when God wrote Scriptures. He was not trying to teach people in a non-scientific community what the scientific explanation was. Let me give you three different ways that people can answer that question. There's something called Yom Theory. Yom Theory. Yom theory means that in the scriptures, it says this, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was on the surface of the deep, and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. And then there was evening, and there was morning, the first yom. Okay, the, the Hebrew word for day is yom. But the word yom in scripture is used to mean 24-hour period of time. It's used to mean a seven-day week. In the book of Psalms, it's used to mean an epoch of time, thousands and thousands of years of time in the Old Testament. Yom is an indefinable period of time. So did God create the earth in six 24-hour periods of time? Maybe. Or maybe he created it in six yams, six epochs, six eras. It's called yom theory. Another theory, which some of us as theologians ascribe to, is what's called gap theory, which means what... Uh, let me ask you two questions. Number one, what is the first, the first verse of the Bible says this, right? In the beginning, open, open up to the first page of your Bible. Do you have it right there? Yeah. Go ahead and open up. Anyone else can if you want to, too. Gap theory states, it asks the question, what is the unspoken period of time between a couple verses? I, I know it. I want you to read it out loud. Okay, so Stop. So the very first verse of the Bible, in a, so someone who ascribes to gap theory, 
to answer the question, why do we see all these layers of strata and dinosaurs and everything? Gap theory states that the first verse of the Bible is bifurcated from the rest of the first chapter. The Bible starts by saying, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay? That's a wholly separate issue than the rest of the chapter. It's saying, when God first invented the cosmos, right? Right, right now our cosmos is 14 billion light years across. That means if you start on one side of it, you travel at the speed of light. It, it will take you 14 billion years to get across our universe. So the, the, the Bible could be saying, in the beginning, God created the heavens, the Uranus, and the earth. Now, what's in, what's, how, does chapter, how does verse 2 start? What's the first word of, chapter two, of verse 2? Yeah. Now. The first word of the next section is the word now. So, what if the Bible is saying, way back in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And now the story of creation is actually God's story of recreation. It's God's story of restoring earth into a place where humans can inhabit it or where he can demonstrate his glory and he can plant the Garden of Eden and all these things. So that's a good way to justify those two things also. That in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, and what does the next verse say? It says, now the what was formless and void? Now the earth was formless and void. Where'd the earth come from? Oh, it's been there. When? It was planted there in the beginning. And now Genesis is just telling us how God took it and made it suitable for mankind, suitable for human life, which we can find easily then in the fossil record, those two things rectifying themselves. Now the question that people ask, how long were Adam and Eve in the garden before they fell? How many of us naturally think Adam and Eve were in the garden for like 24 hours before they ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? That's like our natural assumption. They were there for one day and then they're like, you guys blew it. That was like 24 hours. We have no idea. Could Adam and Eve have been there for three billion years? Maybe. Maybe. And maybe they just start counting the time of Adam's existence or Adam's age after the fall. Because he lived to be, what, 930 years old or something like that? So maybe they just started counting time when they needed to. Because before the fall, there was no death, so why would you count time? It wouldn't make any sense. Those are all different theories. And some people can ascribe to um, a six-day, a, a young earth, a six-day creation, that when God... When God makes Adam and Eve, does he make them as infants? I hope not. Because what's his first command he gives to them? Be fruitful and multiply. I have five kids. I'm not going to walk you through what it takes to be fruitful and multiply. <laughs> but I would guess you don't ask toddlers to do that, right? So if he, makes, if he makes mankind in their adulthood or in their maturity, could God, when he have created the universe, create it in its maturity? Could he have created it with all of the accidents, principles, and characteristics of age, even though it hadn't experienced it? For sure. These are all reasonable for the theologian to process and to think about. So those are different theories as far as the fossil record goes. Uh, that all makes sense for it. The other thing when it comes to strata is um, all archaeology assumes what's called uniformitarianism, which means we look at a uh, pile of dirt, and if it took 20 years for an inch of dirt, let's say 100 years, it takes 100 years for an inch of dirt to be uh, set anywhere on planet Earth, We're making these numbers up. Then if we can see that and we can observe that scientifically, 
then we can assume that therefore two inches down, how old is that piece of earth? 200 years old. How old is three inches down? 300 years. And then you go, okay, well, this, this, this set of bones is 15 inches down. How old is it? It's 150 years old, right? That's called uniformitarian thinking. It means let's assume the universe has always been consistent. Well, the problem with that, especially when you read the book of Genesis, particularly chapter 6, is if there was a cosmic global flood that covered the entire earth, 60, 70, 80, 120, 350 feet deep in water. Do you know what kind of pressure that puts on a planet? Do you know what kind of compaction that can do overnight? It's wild. It's unbelievable what can happen. So uniformitarian thinking assumes a lack of catastrophe. Does the Bible give us a lack of catastrophe? It gives us a lot of catastrophe. So those are all different ways of explaining it. And we don't really know how to do... Um, evidential science. We don't really know how to do forensic science when it comes to catastrophe because we can't recreate it, and we've never seen the earth flood like that before or since. So there's a lot of different ways to explain those things, and the theologian has all of them at his fingertips. Uh, yes? I love how you said Noah's place. It's like a kid's TV show. Hey, Come join me at Noah's place. <laughs> There's the baboons. Um, so God sends two of every kind of animal. That's a question I get a lot as an apologist. People are like, there's 42 million species of dogs. How could, Mo how could Noah take one of each? It's like, bro, that's not how genetics works. There's two wolves, and inside a wolf is the genetic information to make both a chihuahua and a golden retriever. And depending on how you breed them, you lose genetic inf information over time, and so that wolf can become all those things. So all you need is two dogs, and those dogs are canine kind, and they can reproduce and create all the different things. So as far as dinosaurs go, I'm going to lovingly shrug my shoulders and go, I don't know, depending on what theory of creation you ascribe to or how it's born out of that, there's a lot of different ones. Some people would say the dinosaurs were part of an epoch that gave God glory way before humans ever existed, and the earth is really old. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and during that gap, God made dinosaurs, and God made microparticles, and did a whole bunch of things with them. There's another group of people that are, that are called theistic evolutionists who do believe that um, we came about by mutation and growth over time. So, so you understand this. I don't know a Christian who doesn't believe in evolution in terms of microevolution. That you can't not believe in that, right? The, the idea that animals adapt over time or Darwin's finches or the, the black pepper moths in different countries, everyone, everyone believes that. Everyone, right? Anyone with a brain in their skull that has observed science, that's called adaptation, though. When we're talking about evolution, we're talking about macroevolution. That's, that's primordial goo turns into you via the zoo. That's like evolution, that's like macroevolution, Okay. You are, and, and macroevolution naturalistically says you are a result of random chance, you were a complete accident, you have the same particles as stardust, therefore, uh, wow, cool, we became sentient beings and we're able to observe our universe, but it was all a, a, a random chance. No way, first of all. Secondly, um, the, when it comes to, to the evolution, some people believe that God could have directed that process which is a whole different thing to say, which means evolution isn't random. It means that God is c carefully choosing genetic traits and transferring them, but it wouldn't be unguided, it wouldn't be random, and it wouldn't be naturalistic. It would be guided by God, who 
absolutely has the intelligence to complete that process in whatever time frame he wants to. So when it comes to, to dinosaurs, the, the question is kind of a shoulder shrug. Do you believe in theistic evolution? Do you believe in a 14 billion year old universe? Do you believe in an old earth? Do you believe in a young earth? In a young earth, the dinosaurs could have been in the garden with Adam and Eve, and then because they were unsuitable to be around people, God took them out with the flood and, and killed them then. Some people could believe that they were part of the wild and waste world before God reformed it into the garden, and they were just walking around reptilian things, like eating each other, and it was like, this is awesome. But now it's time for the humans to come, so God wipes them out and does that whole thing. Like, we don't know. We don't know. But there's, a, there's not a single theory of creation inside of Christendom, inside of Orthodox Christianity, that doesn't account for the presence of dinosaurs. We just don't know which one it is. So, yeah, good question. Yes. Predestination question? Fantastic. Okay. Okay, so I don't want to stand on a Hume Lake stage and tell you my theology of predestination free will, although I'd be pretty safe to do so because my theology on it is I don't know. Okay? I believe when you get Martin Luther on one side of a conversation and John Calvin on the other side of a conversation and you get um, R.C. Sproul on one side, you get Spurgeon on a side, and you get uh, Aquinas on one side, you, you get all these heroes of Christian faith, our church fathers, Polycarp, and the book of John seems to indicate one thing, but then Paul seems to indicate something else. I think it's only responsible at that point to hold it as an open-handed issue where we go, I don't know. I'm probably a two-and-a-half-point Calvinist, which makes me a two-and-a-half-point Arminian, which is not super helpful because I just kind of go, I can sit with a group of Arminians, and they go, everything's free will. And I go, that's a great point, except I get a little pushback here. But then I sit with Calvinists, and I go, I'm not quite sure about this one. So you could, you could ask me afterwards if you want to come talk to me. I'm going to give you a really confusing answer about how I don't care. Because ultimately... The, the Arminian and the Calvinists agree on everything in terms of actionable steps. Both the Calvinists and the Arminian believe we should preach the word of God. Both, uh, both of us adhere to Matthew 28. Go and make disciples of all nations. Both of us believe that someone rejects God, they go to hell. Both of us believe that if someone re receives God's work on the cross, they go to heaven. We're just arguing the path that they took to get there, which is important insofar as it's neat for us as Christians to talk about but it, is, it actually doesn't make any change in far as what we're supposed to do or how we're supposed to live our lives. So great question. Come talk to me afterwards. That's a little more theological uh, of a question, and so I don't want to speak on behalf of Hume Lake, but even if I did, no one in this room would really probably disagree with me because you would go, that guy doesn't know what he's talking about. He's shrugging his shoulders. Perfect. That's how I, that's how I see the whole conversation. Uh, yeah. Okay, so predestination, it's got many facets to it. The most uh, hardcore right-wing predestinationist or the most right-wing Calvinist would say that when a soul is created in the moment of conception, God has preordained it. They are the frozen chosen. They're either going to heaven or they're going to hell, and they can't do anything about it. Everything in their life has been predestined to happen. There is, in some cases, human responsibility inside of that, but that when a soul is created, God predestines it to go to heaven or to go to hell. The Calvinists would say it's not, really, it's not really negative because we all deserve to go to hell. That's what, that's what the book of Psalm teaches us. We are born to iniquity. We're born to sin. Romans 3 verse 10. 
There's no one righteous, not even one. We've all fall, sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. So God in his divine mercy chooses of his own free accord and his own free will certain people, not because of what you've done or where you live or how tall you are or how cute you are. He randomly, out of his own love and out of his own wisdom and mercy, selects people to be saved. They are called the elect. They've been elected. Arminianism... And I, I'm, I'm stereotyping the, the furthest extremes because there's single predestinationists, which would say God doesn't predestine anyone to go to hell, but he does choose some people to come to heaven. People he doesn't choose to go to heaven, he doesn't send to hell, that's where we're all naturally supposed to go anyway. There's people in the middle, like me. But then you also have people on the far side over here, which your salvation is, um, the most extreme form of Arminianism is that your salvation is kind of like a light switch. You have a good day, you believe in God, it, it, I'm, again, I'm absolutely stereotypical, uh, I'm caricaturizing the statement. That someone can be born into a family, they believe in God, great, then they have some wild teenage years. By the end of it, they found Jesus again, then they start college, they start doing some weird stuff, then they fall away from God, and then they receive him again, and then they fall away, and then they receive him again. So that would be, Arminianism is all about free will. It's that we hear the gospel, and then we have the choice to respond to it. We have the choice to, to, to reject it or to receive it. We can, and then we, we are kind of in control of our destiny as far as that's concerned. I think scripture disagrees with both far ends of that spectrum, or at least is confusing enough, because you have all these passages about how we are responsible for certain things, how choose you this day whom you will serve, this language all throughout scripture, which sometimes when I talk to Calvinists, I go, what do you do with that kind of stuff? And then over here, Romans 8, 30 and 39, Paul says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor anything else in all creation can separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. First John chapter 3, For those who have received the grace of God do not go on sinning. So there seems to be an indication here where God sustains our faith once we've believed, and I don't know. Good question. That's all I gotta say about that topic. Yeah. You have four minutes. Yeah, it, the Nephilim, it's this group of people that were supposed to be the sons of man, and the, or the, the sons of God and the daughters of man, get together, they make what's supposed to be like, some people think these giant creatures, some people just think they're, you know. Um, the funny thing about the Nephilim, or the funny thing about like Goliath, modern records would indicate that Goliath was about six foot three. That's how tall I am. And in a group where everyone was really, really short, that's all the taller he had to be. When it comes to Nephilim, I don't know. I just don't know. If the Bible isn't clear on it, and so I never want to make the Bible say something that it doesn't say, that's one of my ask God when I get there questions. It doesn't shake my faith or bother me at all because it seems to be one of the unknowable things that when God wrote it, everyone was fully understanding what he was talking about. And over the generations, we've just lost exactly what they're talking about. Some people, again, will say it's for sure X or it's for sure Y. I kind of sh shrug my shoulders and go, I don't know. Good question. Uh, two minutes. <coughs> Okay, so you're talking about M theory or string theory. Is that what you're asking me about? How old are you? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Quick question about string theory in the multiverse. Okay. Um, there's no evidence for a multiverse whatsoever. Uh, what, what a lot of scientists and cosmologists have done 
because right now our current model of the universe all points back to a singularity principle, which means every working model of the universe, we used to think maybe the universe, right, the universe is expanding right now, and it's actually getting faster. It's speeding up. The expansion's speeding up. It's speeding up at a rate of 68 kilometers per second per megaparsecond. That's a weird word to use, but it means that the universe is getting bigger while we sit here and while we speak. Uh, Alexander Blanken and uh, Bord and Guth came up with a theorem in 2007 which said any universe that is on average expanding had to have a point at which there was nothing. So our universe had a point before it expanded where it was in a singularity, and that's when all space, time, and matter came about. This is kind of nerdy. Before that, if the whole space-time continuum started at one point, and you push the rewind button on our whole universe, it would, right now it's going like this. If you push rewind, what would happen? And this was the beginning of space, time, and matter. A continuum means they rely on each other, right? You can't have space without time because when would you put it? You can't have matter without space because where would you put it? The continuum, they all rely on each other. So every current working model of the universe says before the singularity exploded, there was nothing. M not nothing. There was, no, there was nothing that, was, that required space, time, or materialism, which is ironic. Because thousands of years ago in Bronze Age Palestine, when someone wrote a book called the Bible, it dictates that God is spaceless, timeless, and immaterial. So every working model of our universe right now says that there was a time before there was space, time, and matter where the only thing that could possibly exist is something that was spaceless, timeless, and, and immaterial, and it started the universe expanding. This is exactly what this Christian scriptures say. Perfectly. When the Big Bang Theory first came out, did Christians oppose it? Nope. Who opposed the Big Bang Theory when it first came out? Naturalists. Anti-Christian naturalists, because they understood if Big Bang Theory is proven true, then it verifies the very first verse of the book of Genesis. In the beginning, before there was time, God created the heavens and the earth. String theory and inverse theory is an attempt to do away with modern cosmology by postulating what if there is another universe where life comes about more easily, where the expansion and the principles and the anthropic coincidences are much less intense, and that universe is where we get our current universe. There's a universe generator out there that keeps spitting stuff out. The problem with that is like 55-fold. The first one is there's no evidence for it whatsoever. It's completely theoretical and philosophical. Secondly, it really just sets back the issue one state because when Alexander Vlenkin said that all universes that are on average expanding have a point by which there was nothing, that doesn't change if you turn it into a multi-foaming model bubble universe. You still need a point at which it all began, which still doesn't do away with the God question. Thirdly, this is one of the most popular ways that modern-day evolutionists talk about biogenesis on planet Earth. What's biogenesis? How did life get here in the first place? Scientists can start with life, assuming that it was already here, and what we can do with it to get to mankind, but there's not a scientist on planet Earth who has any clue where that first life came from. Some of the most brilliant scientists, and I'm including Richard Dawkins in this, believes in what's called panspermia, which means, first of all, it assumes there's a multiverse or a multidimensional universe where aliens from another universe jumped into our universe and seeded life on the back of crystals in caves in Africa, and that's where life began. I'm not making this up. 
This is legit. It's called panspermia theory, and it is a leading theory of biogenesis in the naturalistic community. When you start doing the research for it, you find that M theory and that the multiverse theory and that string theory is all an attempt to do away with it. When you jump into the odds of there being any kind of multiverse, the odds are phenomenally astronomical. One in 10 to the 120th power raised to the 70th power. If you don't, I mean, that's, that's a number, it's an incomprehensible number. Scientists or mathematicians would say something's impossible when it's one in 10 to the 50th power. This is one in 10 to the 120th power raised further to the 70th. It's just, it's bonkers. So it's an attempt to do away with modern cosmology that provides another solution for it. Shoot, when that day comes where they prove a multiverse, great, I'll be the first one there. My theology doesn't predispose that there couldn't be a multiverse. The Bible doesn't say there couldn't be one. We just don't have any evidence for one. So it's silly to jump into that because we don't need there to be one. It's just a way to undo what we know about modern cosmology. It's 1032. I want to be good with you all's time. I got another seminar coming up here in a few minutes. We're going to be asking different questions. I would really, uh, I'd push you though to make sure you can check out the other ones that you've wanted to check out. Jen's got a great one. Morgan's got a great one. Mikey's got a great one. Everyone's got a great one. So I'm going to let you guys go right now. If you want to stay, just stay put. If not, here's the places that we're going on the screen.